This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. Uh, for the rest of us, if you would, please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, we have reached the midpoint in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. The apostle has spent three chapters unpacking deep and wonderful truths for us. He's been unpacking what one brother called some pretty heady stuff. I think most of you can affirm and attest to that when you read Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2, and Ephesians 3, that there is, in fact, some incredible, wonderful truths that the Apostle Paul is giving us as he prepares us for the second half of his letter. And sometimes, so often, when we read the Bible, when we hear God's Word preached to us, we would do well simply to say with Paul in Romans chapter 11, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his ways, how inscrutable are his judgments. So as we approach Ephesians chapter 4 this morning, I pray that your heart would be ready to receive God's word for you today. Let's read Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Listen as I read. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you have been called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also had descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is God's word for you this morning. We will consider these 16 verses under three sections. So if you're taking notes, this is the outline of the sermon. 16 verses, three sections. First, we'll consider verses 1 through 6 under the unity of the Spirit. The unity of the Spirit. We'll consider verses 7 through 13 under diversity of gifts. Diversity of gifts. And lastly, we'll consider verses 13 through 16 under one common purpose. Unity of the Spirit, diversity of gifts, one common purpose. 
Let's take a moment now and pray and ask God to be with us as we consider his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what we know not, we pray that you would teach us. What we have not, we pray that you would give us. What we are not, we pray that you would make us so that we might dwell together in the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, so that we might exercise our diversity of gifts in this congregation, so that we might accomplish our one common purpose to grow up into our head in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray all of this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Well, first, let's consider verses 1 through 6. Verses 1 through 6, unity of the Spirit. The Apostle Paul has, here in this letter, just finished praying for the church of Jesus Christ. That's what we considered two weeks ago. He prayed that we would be strengthened by the Father in the love of the Son and by the power of the Holy Spirit in our inner being, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is a grand and gracious prayer, and it's punctuated by Paul's praise to God. So look with me at Ephesians 3, verses 20 and 21. Paul writes, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and forever. Amen. What a grand and a gracious prayer and praise that Paul gives us here in Ephesians chapter 3. And after Paul gives his hearty amen, it's as if he lifts his head from praying and he stares us straight in the eye and he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. It's as if he he prays a prayer, and as soon as the prayer is done, he looks at us, and he gives us this charge to walk in a manner worthy. Brothers and sisters, do you feel the Christian yoke? Do you feel the Christian burden in Paul's words, the literal urgency of his words? The Apostle Paul is saying to us in these words, not just an urging, but an implied within the urging, he's saying to us that we can walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. We can do what Paul, what God, through Paul, is calling us to do. Of course, the opposite is true. We can walk in an unworthy manner and so quench the Spirit of God. We can walk in an unworthy manner and so profane the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can walk in an unworthy manner and so cast doubt upon our election and our calling as Christians. We see this in 1 Thessalonians 5 and 2 Peter 1. And so, beloved, I fear that sometimes, sometimes we hear the call for holiness and urging to be holy and we receive it with apprehension. We receive it with anxiety. We're quick to qualify or to downplay the necessity of holiness in the Christian life. We fear greatly that red letter L might be sewn upon our chest. Legalist. But beloved, we should never receive biblical commands apart from the gracious God 
who gives them. And so we can think about Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and we think of the garden, and we think about God who made the world and everything in it. He made Adam, and he put Adam in the garden. All gracious acts of God. Genesis 2, he creates a helper fit for Adam, a wife who would be Eve, the mother of all living. Grace upon grace. And then God commands Adam and Eve to be fruitful and to multiply, to take dominion over all of God's good creation. Grace and command. We see this same relational pattern play out with Noah and with Abraham. We see this in the giving of the law to Moses in Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Grace, grace upon grace. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. Therefore, you shall not make graven images. Therefore, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. Grace and command. And this relational dynamic between God and man, it works its way all throughout the scriptures. And it works its way even to chapter 2 of this very letter where the Apostle Paul tells us that we were dead in sin, condemned in sin, enslaved in sin, following after the prince of the power of the air, that wicked Pharaoh that is even now at work in the sons of disobedience. But God, chapter 2, verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy and having great love for his people, makes us alive. He sets us free from our enslavement. By grace you have been saved. And this is not your own doing, beloved, and you know that. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. And at this point, we should all shout our hallelujahs. All of us should shout hallelujah. None of us can be justified by our obedience. We must all look to Christ, the one who lived an obedient life for us, the one who died a sacrificial death for us, the one who was raised victorious for our salvation. It's Jesus Christ alone who justifies us and saves us from the wrath of God. And then the Apostle Paul, in chapter 2, verse 10, speaks God's word to us and says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And so, beloved, we can walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called because God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He has called us out of the land of Egypt, that kingdom of darkness, out of slavery to sin, and he has placed us in the kingdom of his beloved son, the kingdom of light, and he has sealed us with his promised Holy Spirit, Ephesians chapter 1. And so Christian, Christian, we say with Augustine, God, command what you will, and then give us what you command. And the very first way that Paul shows us that we can walk in a manner worthy of our calling is to be eager, to be eager to maintain or to manifest the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Verse 3, 
You might recall that Paul is writing this letter to a church that is wrestling through a merger of Jew and Gentile and all that that would entail for the Christian life. And so in the midst of incredible differences, Paul urges these Christians and he urges us to be eager to maintain or manifest the unity of the Spirit in the church of Christ. And I wonder if you see Paul's logic. Look, look with me at verses 3 through 6. If you see Paul's logic here in verses 3 through 6, we should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace because we have one God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. One God and Father of our one Lord Jesus Christ who lived for us and died for each one of us and lives again for each one of us by the power of one Holy Spirit. We have one faith, that faith that was once for all delivered to the one body of saints who have entered into the one body through the one baptism. And together we share in one great and glorious hope, Christ in us, the hope of glory. Here in these verses, we see a sevenfold oneness. I wonder if you caught the, the, the number of times that Paul uses one, the, the, the word one there. He says there is one God, there is one Lord, there is one Spirit. He does it seven times, this picture of completion and fullness. What had Paul just prayed? Paul had just prayed that God would be all in all, that he would, we would be filled with the fullness of God. And here Paul says that we have this sevenfold oneness. That it is the unity of the Spirit, this sevenfold oneness, the unity of the Spirit, that we have it in the bonds of peace. And so Paul urges us to maintain it, to keep it, to preserve it, to manifest this spiritual unity in flesh and blood in the church. Brothers and sisters, are you eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? Brothers and sisters, we must be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Here at University Park Baptist Church and every other gospel-believing church around the world, I would, I would invite you this afternoon to go read John 17. You know what happens in John 17? The Lord Jesus Christ himself prays for us. He prays for us that we would be one, just as he and the Father are one. And if the Lord Jesus Christ has prayed for us, don't we have great confidence that he will accomplish all that he prayed for us? Let us be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And beloved, as we do that, it will require of us all humility and gentleness and patience and love. And so now, brothers and sisters, we walk by the Spirit in a manner worthy of our calling, turning from our pride and walking the path of humility. So when Augustine, the early church father, was asked, what is the chief Christian virtue? It's reported that he replied, humilitas, 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 humility. One author defined humility as not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. We turn from our wrath and we walk the path of gentleness. And gentleness here is not a, an emphasis of winsomeness or not an emphasis on weakness. No, here gentleness has the sense of strength under control. Strength under control. And so the Presbyterian minister Ian Hamilton says that the gentle are strong in their convictions concerning the truths of the gospel, 
but they hold those convictions within hearts that love God and love the saints. Gentleness is having strong convictions concerning the truths of the gospel, but holding those convictions within hearts of love for God and all the saints. We turn from our impatience and we walk the path of patience, the path of long-suffering, which also includes turning from our hatred and anger and bitterness and walking the path of love. And so Paul will write elsewhere about love that encapsulates all these virtues of humility and gentleness and patience. 1 Corinthians 13, the Apostle Paul writes that love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. Love is not irritable or resentful. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Love never ends. And so all of this, all of this unity of the Spirit that we walk out in humility and gentleness and patience is to be wrapped up in our love for God and our love for each other. It's to be accomplished in our lives by the continual turning away, repenting of sin, and keeping in step with the Spirit of God as we walk the path of life by faith together. So is it any wonder that Martin Luther said the whole of the Christian life is repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. God has made known to us, beloved, the path of life. In his presence there is fullness of joy, and at his right hand is the Lord Jesus Christ, our great pleasure forevermore. And so we walk the path of humility and gentleness and patience and love together. Loved ones, let's walk in a manner worthy of our calling by eagerly maintaining the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And as we live in such a way in the church, the Apostle Paul tells us that this unity of the Spirit comes with a diversity of gifts. It comes with a diversity of gifts. Look at, look at verse 7. Look at verse 7 of this Nope, that's chapter 3, verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who is also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists, and the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The Apostle Paul says in these verses that while we are unified in the Spirit, we are of one faith and of one body and of one Spirit, that we are all of differing measures of grace. We're all of differing levels of maturity in grace. And particularly, we are all differing in our measures of gifts of grace. Paul is here not speaking of, of differing levels of salvation as if someone is more saved than another and if we only persist in things, we will become saved like someone else is saved. No, that's not what Paul is saying. That's a Roman Catholic, a Catholic idea that we would reject. No, 
That's not what Paul's saying. We are Christians. We are all Christians. And so we know that every true Christian stands before God, clothed in the righteousness of Christ alone. We are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But here the Apostle Paul is speaking to something else. He's speaking to our sanctification. We all intuitively, and I think experientially, understand, and I'm confident that each one of us as Christians uh, in this room can think of a brother or a sister in Christ that we look up to in the faith. We look up to for their godliness and for their giftedness. We all start the Christian life by God's grace as infants, and we need spiritually mature and gifted brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers in the faith to help us grow into maturity and into godliness in our sanctification. And Paul's point here is simply to say there is a diversity of grace and gifts within the church. Note for a minute that these spiritual gifts are sovereignly given. These spiritual gifts are sovereignly given, and they're sovereignly given to every Christian. Did you catch that in verse 7? Look at verse 7. Grace was given, it was not earned, it was sovereignly given to each one of us. To each one of us. So if you're here this morning and you are a Christian, God has gifted you for service in some way in the church. What that also means is that we should not be envious of others. Whatever spiritual gift we possess has been given to us by the good pleasure and kindness, the grace of God. To envy or to grumble against another Christian's giftedness is to question the very wisdom of God. So it is, it, is it any wonder that the Apostle Paul says to Timothy, an elder in the church in Ephesus, he says to Timothy that godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. The spiritual giftedness of others is an opportunity to thank God for the gifts he's given to his church. Well, then Paul takes us here in a peculiar direction. Verses 8 through 10, if you look at those verses, verses 8 through 10, something of a peculiar sidebar, Paul quotes here Psalm 68, verse 18. Psalm 68, verse 18, is a triumph song. It's a, a verse of a conquering king, the Lord himself, who ascends on high and leads a host of captives free. So I wonder here if you hear again the, the, the words of the Exodus coming through in these pages, in these scriptures that are given to us by God. A, a host of captives are being set free by the Lord. And do you see that Paul, in this verse, sees the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ as that exodus, that by his resurrection and ascension, Jesus Christ has led us, formerly captive to sin and death and hell, free from slavery to sin and death and hell. This is why Paul uses this verse in this way. And then he gives us this parenthetical in verses 9 and 10 to assure us that it is in fact Christ that he's speaking of, the one who ascended is the one who also descended and if the one who descended would be the one who ascended and gave gifts to men this very confusing way of Paul putting it he could have just said I'm talking about Jesus but he didn't and so if you're here this morning if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian if you're here this morning and you have questions about what it means to be a Christian if you're here this morning and you don't even know what I'm talking about well we are glad that you're here 
There's nowhere else we'd rather you be this morning than here with us as we worship God together in Jesus Christ. We want you to know that you too, you too can be set free, can be called out of the darkness of sin and death and into the marvelous light of the kingdom of God. That you too can be set free from captivity to sin and death and hell. And so friend, this is God's world. You need to know this. This is God's world. You are God's creation, and you are in rebellion against God's law. You have disobeyed God's law. You do not live the way that God requires. That's what we call sin. But in these strange verses that I hope you've been paying attention to, these strange verses, particularly verses 9 and 10, the Apostle Paul, friend, wants you to know that the one who ascended, that's Jesus Christ, that he also descended to the earth. Jesus Christ became a man, and he lived a life that you could never live. And more than that, Jesus Christ died a death that you deserve. He took the punishment for your rebellion upon himself. And even more than that, Jesus Christ rose from the dead on the third day. And in his resurrection, he has proved to us all that his life and his death are acceptable payment for our sins. And so Paul reminds us in these verses that Jesus Christ, the one who descended, he also ascended, returning to his place of majesty in heaven. And so friend, friend, right now in the preaching of this good news, Jesus Christ is calling you to turn from your sins and to place your trust in him, to come to him by faith, to give yourself to him, to lay yourself upon him, to give up all of your running and rebellion, and to come back to the king. And so, friend, I urge you, in the name of Jesus Christ, turn from your sin and trust in him alone. Give yourself to Jesus Christ. And once you have done that, once you have given yourself to Jesus Christ, please tell someone that you're seated next to, come find me after the service. We would love nothing more than to tell you what it means to be a Christian and to encourage you in your walk of this new calling you have in Jesus Christ. Well, let's look again at verse 8. Turn your attention to verse 8. If you read Psalm 68, verse 18, most, if not all of your Bibles, will say that the Lord received gifts from men. Received gifts from him. But Paul here says that he gave gifts to men. So what, what's going on here? I just want to spend a few moments addressing this because I don't want anyone to be confused, though it is confusing. So there's two thoughts. One is that uh, some ancient manuscripts actually read like Paul's quotation. That Psalm 68:18 says, the Lord gave gifts to men. That's one way of understanding it and the easiest explanation for what's happening here. But those manuscripts are the minority report. And so what's likely happening is that the quotation here from Paul is Paul himself emphasizing that the triumph of Jesus Christ in his resurrection and his ascension is so incredible that, that he, plunders, he plunders Satan and the demons. And that when he plunders this victory, that he gives gifts to men. 
So not only is he receiving gifts, it's not, it's not like Paul is misquoting Psalm 68, but Paul is applying apostolic reasoning to emphasize for us the incredible grace of God in Jesus Christ. That not only is he due all honor and glory and blessing and gifts from men, but that in his victory he graciously gives gifts to men. And so brothers and sisters, I don't want you to be concerned that somehow Paul here is misquoting Psalm 68. No, Paul is applying his apostolic reasoning to show us that Jesus Christ is far more above any king of Israel, but that Jesus Christ not only receives gifts from men, but he gives gifts to men. This is what the Apostle Peter says in Acts chapter 2. Peter, in his preaching, says, Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. And so in other words, when Jesus Christ ascended, the Spirit of Christ descended and gave gifts to men. So what are those gifts? What are those gifts? Well, that's another sermon entirely to be preached by Travis at some point in the future. The New Testament, the New Testament mentions 19 or 20 different gifts, depending on how you count. Uh, four different passages, First Corinthians, uh, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 11, 12, 13, 14, kind of taken as a whole, uh, 1 Peter 4, and our text here this morning. 19 or 20 different spiritual gifts mentioned in the scriptures. You'll find that the New Testament generally teaches two different types of spiritual gifts, gifts of speech and gifts of service. And in our text here this morning, Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul mentions only four gifts that God gives to his church. And some of you are thinking, well, there's five words. I'll get to that in a minute. Four gifts that God gives to his church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and I think you take shepherd and teacher together, the shepherd teachers. So the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherd teachers. And this is the only list in all of the New Testament that seem to combine together the gifts of speech and service, or the gift of word and deed. It's instructive here that each of these gifts is a word gift, that's a speech gift, that is that each of these gifts is identified with the ministry of speaking and teaching God's word. We know from Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20 that the apostles and prophets were foundational to the church of Christ. The apostles were men, including the apostle Paul, who were uniquely commissioned by the Lord Jesus himself to speak and teach God's word to God's people. And so in doing the entire New Testament, we receive it as apostolic teaching. It carries the weight and authority of the Lord Jesus Christ himself because it was given to us by the apostles. The prophets here were also foundational to the church of Christ. That is, that the prophets were contemporaries of the apostles who declared, thus says the Lord. They were prophetic in their revelation of God's word. It was not necessarily apostolic in in its authority, But it was here given to the early church and contained, it seems, in the earliest days of the New Testament church. And so we're not here thinking about Old Testament prophets. These were New Testament prophets. But certainly there was a common ministry of speaking and teaching God's word to God's people in the earliest days of the church. And so Paul says himself that the apostles and the prophets were foundational to the establishment of the church of Christ, which means that these particular gifts no longer function in the church today. We do not have apostles and prophets in this sense in the church today. But the Lord, in his wisdom, 
and in his providence did not leave the church without word gifts or speech gifts. He gave evangelists and shepherd teachers to the church. So some have suggested that perhaps all three of these gifts, evangelist, shepherd, and teachers, are one gifting or one office, the office of an elder. Others have suggested that evangelists were likely apostles and prophets, only foundational to the church rather than currently functional in the church. Look, it's hard to be dogmatic about these kinds of things. And perhaps this is one of the ways that we can maintain the unity of the Spirit, by bearing with one another in our differing understandings of these difficult texts. I think, I think that in these three words, evangelist, shepherd, and teacher, we find two gifts that regularly rest in one office. Three words, two gifts that regularly, not always, but regularly rests in one office, and that is the office of an elder. There are grammatical reasons for my position in this, but more than that is the overwhelming biblical testimony of the office and function of an elder in the church. I'd also just incidentally point out in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, the word shepherd is the only time in the New Testament we have the word that we would translate pastor. It's the only time in the New Testament that we would translate the word pastor, but that the office of an elder is referred to some 20 times in the New Testament. We find the qualifications and responsibilities for an elder in Titus 1, 1 Timothy 3, and 1 Peter 5. And in those passages, we learn that an elder must be exemplary in Christian character, and for our purposes here today, particularly, gifted to teach God's word. Gifted to teach God's word. Further, an elder is to be the shepherd of the flock of God in his midst. Peter tells us, and Paul tells Timothy, that Ephesian elder, in the context of eldering in Ephesus, to do the work of an evangelist. So here we have the qualifications of an elder, to teach, to shepherd, and to be an evangelist. All right there in Scripture. And so because of that, I would take evangelist, shepherd, and teachers as two particular gifts, evangelist and shepherd teachers, resting regularly in one office, the office of an elder. If you're still with me, hallelujah, praise the Lord. All right. Loved ones, beloved, members of University Park Baptist Church, do you consider the ministry of your elders a gift from God for you? Paul says that you should. Insofar as the elders of this church meet the qualifications set forth in God's word, faithfully speak and teach God's word to you, evangelize the lost, and brothers and sisters, we should all receive the ministry of the elders as a gift from God. Brother elders, those men who may aspire to be elders one day, consider the weight and the privilege of your gifting. Brothers, you are called by God to shepherd the flock of God in your midst. You are called by God to teach the word of God to God's people. And you are called by God to do the work of an evangelist. Brothers, it is a noble and a grand task that we have been given. And for those aspiring to it, Paul commends you. Paul commends you for your aspiration to aspire to the office of an elder. 
The ministry of the elder is not only a word gift, but it's also a deed or service gift. The ministry of the elders is the means, verse 12, that God will use, God will use to equip brothers and sisters in the church for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And beloved, if that is true, and it is true, then how should we prioritize the public teaching and preaching of God's word? How should we prepare our own hearts to receive God's word to us week in and week out? The word of God, preached by men of God, is the sufficient means of God to build up the church of God. Brothers and sisters, I urge you to not forsake the gathering of the body, to make every effort to gather together to receive God's word every Lord's day, to receive God's word in faith. Are you believing God's word today? Believe it and to act upon it. I urge you, beloved, to strive together for the truths of the gospel in this church, to sustain the doctrines of this church, to ensure the faithful preaching of God's word in this church. God's word is powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, and he has entrusted it to his church to be proclaimed by men of God, to be preserved by the church of God. So it seems the primary way that Paul gives us to maintain and manifest the unity of the Spirit, to walk in a worthy manner, is to gather together to receive the word of God, proclaimed by men of God to the church of God, so that the church of God might grow in knowledge and love for God. This is our one common purpose, to grow to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Paul tells us in these last verses that maturity looks like stability. Maturity looks like stability in doctrine, and maturity looks like sanctified service in the church. Maturity looks like stability in doctrine and sanctified service in the church. Notice in verse 14, look at verse 14, that Paul says, We are not to be like little children, tossed to and fro by every wave and wind of doctrine, like infants learning how to walk. No, we are to be Christians. And so we're to learn how to walk and to get better at walking. We're to grow in our doctrinal stability. We start the Christian life with a basic knowledge and understanding of God and of Christ and his ways, like a toddler who begins to wobble around on the stairs of Christian doctrine and maturity until we arrive at a settled conviction of Christian doctrine. This is why in our church covenant we commit to have no settled convictions contrary to our statement of faith, because we want to be mature and stable in our knowledge of Christ and be unified in the truth. In verses 15 and 16, Paul tells us that maturity also shows itself in sanctified service, sanctified service to the church. The elders may have the responsibility and privilege of oversight and of teaching in the church, but brothers and sisters in Christ, the ministry of the elders, speaking the truth in love, is aimed at equipping every member for sanctified service in the church. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ himself, from whom the whole body joined together, working properly together. Did you catch that? We're joined together and working properly together. For what end? Until the whole body grows itself up. It builds itself up in love for God and for each other. So brothers and sisters, the church needs your sanctified service. 
We need your sanctified service. We need each other to spur one another on in love and good deeds. We need one another to love the little children, all the children in our midst, to help raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We need men and women devoted to prayer, serving the body of Christ by petitioning the head of the body. And let me just say how encouraged I have been by so many of you in your service to this church, and in especially, I've been encouraged the way that the deacons have served this congregation. The deacons have done an incredible job with great zeal and competence in serving this congregation. So praise the Lord for your service in the church. Thank God for the gifts that he has given you in the church. We need God's word to do God's work in God's church through the people of God. This is our one common purpose in the church, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called, to grow in unity and maturity in Christ. The Apostle Paul says that we will spend the rest, the Apostle Paul will spend the rest of Ephesians showing us even more ways that we can grow in our service and love for one another, what it looks like to walk in a worthy manner. And you'll see in these coming sermons that the Apostle Paul is aiming at all, not just for this life, but for the life that is to come. The life that is to come when our unity of the Spirit and the bonds of peace will be finally realized around the throne of God in glory. Amen. Let's pray. God in heaven, we do pray that we would receive the word of God, that we would believe it, and that we would act upon it. God, we pray that you would work in us and through us for the building up of your church until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, until we attain to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we might not be tossed to and fro, that we would stand firm, that we might not be hearers only but doers of the word and so sanctify our service to you and your church. And we pray that we would do this with all humility and gentleness, patience and love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.